Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Cannabis Tech Talks, brought to you by PolyScience. This is Patricia Miller, Managing Editor for Cannabis and Tech Today. Speaking with us for this episode is beloved comedian and actor Pete Holmes. Holmes joined us via Zoom from his home in California to discuss comedy, philosophy, and his role on the CBS primetime series, How We Roll. So how's your day been, I guess, just to start? Yep, we're having a great time. Good. Uh, yeah. Well, um, so I spent the weekend kind of perusing um, some of your work. I started reading your book, which I thought was really cool. Oh, wow. Um, and I know it said that you first started doing comedy at church, which I think is is awesome, a great venue for it. Um, at what point in that process did you kind of realize you wanted to do it professionally? Oh, I, I'm pretty sure as soon as I knew it was an option, but um, it was really in college. I, I, when I started going to college, I realized everyone was picking a job. And um, I guess it's oversimplified to say this, but I felt like it was the thing that I was the best at. And, and more than that, because I wasn't really good at it, um, but I, I, it was the thing I was the most interested in, was like the business of, of comedy. And growing up in my family, like we valued comedy. We liked comedy movies. My mom always um, put the the funny pages out in the morning. I know that sounds silly, but like <laughs> even into my teenage years and 20s, like if I had breakfast at home, she would put out the, we'd call them the funnies, the comics out and would read them and talk about them. So like making jokes and getting jokes. I say in the book that one of my family's mottos is lighten up because my parents were just constantly making jokes in every situation. So I guess it was sort of a, a family thing. And then when I got to college and everybody was picking jobs, I was like, I don't want to do any, I don't want to do any of this stuff. <laughs> like it didn't sound interesting at all to me. So I started doing uh, improv and stand up uh, more seriously in college. And then when I graduated, I was just like, I read a book about Chris Farley and Chris Farley after college, I'm pretty sure after college, moved to Chicago. He was coming from Madison, Wisconsin, so it was a little bit easier. I was coming from Boston, but he moved to Chicago, did Second City, and then got an SNL. And like so many young people who didn't know anything about comedy, all you really know is SNL. So you're like, how do you get on SNL? You're like, well, you go to Chicago and you audition for Second City. And that's what I did. I literally, because of that article, I moved to Chicago. Did not get into Second City. <laughs> I didn't even get into the classes. Like you have to audition to take a class at Second City. And I didn't get into the classes. <laughs> wow. By the way, that's Rivers. not really on them. Here I am, you know, a working comedian. I guess I could be like, so shows what they know. No, I was really bad. <laughs> and um, they were right to not accept me. <laughs> <laughs> that's very, that's yeah. very candid of you. <laughs> yeah. No, I had a lot to learn. and But I ended up being in Chicago, which is an improv town, but then doing stand-up which was so much better. Obviously, New York, if you ask me, I'd say New York is the stand-up city and Chicago is like the improv city. But you don't want to start in the mecca of your art form. You want to start in a place like Chicago where like everybody that was doing it was doing it because they loved it. There was no way of making it in Chicago. Uh, there was no industry, you know, there was no TV shows. Nobody was looking really at the stand-up scene in Chicago. So it was this little bubble to just get good. And then I moved to New York. Okay. So good, good practice ground. 
Yeah, I don't want to diminish it. It is its own scene in its own right. And being a part of the Chicago scene was incredible and not easy. I, something about the cold in Chicago, people are like, really, they don't fake laugh. <laughs> you, have to work, you have to work for it and warm them up literally in two ways. But uh, it was a great scene. I mean, the people that I started with at the open mic, like Kumail Nanjiani is one of them. We started the same week and and, and a whole slew of others, Hannibal Burris, Kyle Kinane, Matt Bronger, just so many people all at this open mic. So it was a very, very fortuitous time to start. Well, it sounds like you've had to adapt your style for like a lot of different crowds. I mean, maybe starting in church and then East Coast and then yeah. New York. Um, yeah. How how do you approach something like that? Like, how would you adapt your style for different different audiences? Well, I mean, I bet you, it's a generous question. I bet you know, because we all sort of do it. You know, I think one of the things that makes going home for Thanksgiving unpleasant, I'll just say for me, <laughs> and for a lot of people, is you have to like go back to a part, you you have to play to that audience. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. A different audience than the audience that is your friends or right. even your college friends versus your high school friends versus your grown up friends. These are all different audiences and you learn how to mirror people and, and we do this socially and you do, and when you're a standup, you do that as part of your job. So obviously when I was doing church stuff, um, the premium was put on not being offensive. <laughs> yeah, that's like that was, that was number one. Like they would, yeah. even if you were not funny, they would, a lot of people would still like it just because you weren't offensive. He managed and, not to be crude. Well done. Exactly. Yeah. The relief, the yeah. relief that you weren't crude was the entertainment. <laughs> like they were just so happy. Um, and I, I was like that too. I'd be nervous when a comedian was talking when I was super religious. And then when I got to Chicago, it had its own flavor. And then you get to New York and there is, like one of the things I noticed about New York is there's just so much more diversity that like there's a greater cultural understanding of different ethnicities, like, and there are different ethnicity people performing. That's not to say everybody was white in Chicago, but when I got to New York, that's when I really met, you know, Nigerian comedians and, you know, Orthodox Jewish comedians and, and just so many more types of people because that's what that's what New York is. Yeah, I'm sure that was that was immersive. And yeah. then it makes me think of um, your podcast. You made it weird. Um, I wonder, you know, you don't know your audience necessarily for a podcast, right? I mean, you kind of know your demographics, but I like that you don't shy away from sharing your experiences in that um, podcast. You've talked about um, using different mind-altering substances, maybe it's cannabis or LSD. Um, what kind of allowed or caused that sea change for you where you could, you went from, you know, drug abstinence to, to being able to discuss it so openly? Well, not just with drugs, but like, no, when I figured out that my parents weren't watching. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's actually, I, I like that. Yeah. Although that's not entirely fair. Like, my parents, um, I don't know, they're a mystery. I don't have them figured out. I was about to make a declarative statement about them, but I don't have them figured out. <laughs> but I will say the first time I did mushrooms, which is a big, uh, it's like the inciting incident of my book um, because it changed my life the first time I did psilocybin. Um, one of the first people I told was my mom because she had. she was the one who introduced me to faith, to like the idea of, 
uh, a, a mystery, like all of this being born of something we don't understand, right? And then when you take uh, a psychedelic, you really feel like you, um, and I think you are, you're spending time with that, with that mystery. Uh, mm. Meaning the mystery is, you know, knowing itself, the part of you that, that knows yourself, right? I don't want to get too much on this tangent, but I, I've said many times that taking mushrooms was a religious experience for me. And I always tell people that it's not that I saw like Jesus or Muhammad or Buddha or something talking to me. It's not what you see, it's that you see your seeing with something. And that's what mushrooms does is it, it turns the focus of the seer back on itself in a small way. And that is what revelation is. <laughs> that's like a very good definition for uh, revelation. So even if you just see like clowns, you know, mooning you or, or a kangaroo doing backflips, it doesn't really matter. It, it's that you, you get a, a firsthand um, transrational, meaning it's not, it's not just irrational. It's actually beyond the concepts of rational or irrational experience that's ineffable. And when you come back to it, you really can't talk about it. And that's one of the great gifts, the, the humbling gift of, uh, of an experience like mushrooms is, is you come back and even while it's happening, you know, you won't be able to talk about it. Mm. And I think human beings could use, or at least I could use some of that humility is you come back and you start using images and pictures and stories to try and explain what happened to you. And then my heart sort of softened to the plight of religion. I was like, oh, that might be what they're doing too. Meaning there's something so true they can only be spoken about with lies. Is a, is a real epiphany I had when I was trying to talk about my experience. Wow, that is so beautifully put. I don't think I've ever heard anyone describe a mushroom experience like that, but I think it's the closest I've heard to actually kind of encapsulating that. Oh, that's interview. wonderful. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. It makes me think of um, an, another part of your book. And like, I'm just in the beginning, like I mentioned, but you said a recurring question you had is sort of that, what is it? Like that question about what is it? You're older and wiser now. You've got um, your, your child. Have you started kind of being able to answer that question, find answers to it? Well, I mean, I don't want to be too cheeky, but you are the answer to that question. <laughs> like what the thing that's looking out your eyes is the answer to everything. So there are a lot of mystical poets that would say the same thing that, you know, you go out there looking for God, but you don't find it until you turn back and go, you give up and turn back and go inside. And that's a cliche. Um, it's unfortunate that it's a cliche because it's true, which means there's nothing I can really, I can't like summarize it as much as I can um, remove thinking and calm down and silent and get still enough that I can, um, get lost in the thing that is doing the knowing and the seeing inside of me, which is what nobody talks about. It's the constant of experience. It's um, Rupert Sp Spira gives this great example of, it's like a movie screen, consciousness is like a movie screen and everything plays on it. And you sort of forget that there's a constant, which is the screen because it's obscured by all these images. It's the mm -hmm. same thing with consciousness. When you were five years old, it was the same consciousness as the consciousness that you have now. It's the images and the experiences and the relationships that change, but people don't talk enough about what doesn't change, which is the sense of I am. So I don't remember how we got there. <laughs> <laughs> 
But uh, do you remember how we got there? Yeah, <laughs> I think I was probably um, asking, you know, if, if you found answers to the sort of what oh, is this yeah. kind of well, no, So what is this? So this is for a cannabis. Uh, these are for cannabis people, right? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I will bring it back more to cannabis. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, (laughs) Cannabis is also a psychedelic, as I'm sure you know. Um, One of the things I really love about my uh, people who smoke pot, but not just people who smoke pot, is anybody that's asking what I would consider to be sort of like stock lava lamp, blacklight poster, dorm room conversations, like, what is this? Yeah. Or what are we doing floating on a rock? Or like when, when you sing happy birthday in your head, how are you hearing that? Like, how are you hearing that? Um, it's funny that that's like a stoner question, Patricia, because it's like, that's the most important question. So sometimes I'll talk about those things and I go, I, I'll, I've yelled it, you know, I'm joking, but I yell it at the audience. I go, why do you have to be stoned for that to be interesting? Yes. And one of the things I like about weed is it does make you a little bit more childlike and it can make your, this is what people criticize weed for is it does sort of make you a little less uh, technically, uh, you know, sharp. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't want to like build a bridge when you're, (laughs) you know, and that's fine. But what's bad about it, there's a, there's a strength in its weakness and the strength of its weakness is that when you're, when you stop thinking, that like very Greek logic, like this, 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 which is what we're all obsessed with. You, you allow yourself more room to just ask basic questions like, what is this? So I don't, my daughter's name is Leela. Leela means the dance of the universe, the play of the universe. And I believe that this is a Leela. That's how you would use it in Hinduism or Buddhism. They both use it. This is a Leela. This is consciousness dancing for itself. Um, Rupert Spira again would say, why does a woman have a baby? She, the love in her wants to, she wants to make more of it. There's no reason. It's not like a logical thing. There's love in her and she wants to make more of it. So too, I would say the universe. I don't subscribe. This is a real stoner thought. I, and it's Terrence McKenna too. I don't think this universe was erupted out of nothing. I don't think nothing exists. I think it's much more likely that this universe erupted out of something similar to what it is. And it's going to continue to do that in any direction in every direction for as long as it wants, because I believe awareness is ultimately peaceful, unfrightening and loving. And I believe that it's doing whatever it wants. (laughs) And And if you were infinity, Patricia, what game wouldn't you play? You'd play every game, you'd play every game, but don't forget the screen behind all experience that is always peaceful, always unchanging, always satisfied. That's that's sort of our game is to come back to that no matter what's going on. That's so cosmic. It reminds me of a a Star Trek character. There was Mm. the, the guy who could, he was omnipresent and so he could live out any infinite, um, amount of realities and he did and then used that to inform his his judgment but also just to amuse himself um yeah that's why i like leela the the idea that it's a dance why do you dance or why do you have a baby or you know why do you paint or why do you look at a tree or whatever it is it's all doing it for its own sake some people add more sort of anthropomorphic ideas like we're doing it to evolve or to grow or to learn I think it might be a little bit more simple. We're doing it because we're doing it. Yeah, I can dig that though. (laughs) 
I like that a lot. We're doing it to do it. Yeah. Well, it's an Alan Watts thing. The, the meaning of life is life. Life yeah. is life. <laughs> That's good. And it, I, I don't understand why it has to be a stoned question because these are the questions I've thought myself long before I ever had an interest in cannabis. So I, mm-hmm. I could relate to that about, um, about your book. It's one of my great frustrations. And it is that, well, you know, it's a frustrating, often like people that smoke pot or, or do mushrooms or whatever it might be. I don't know what it is, but it does tend to like create a community that's a little bit more likely to talk about these things. Yeah. Um, and in that way, like a joint is like a little beacon potentially. Oh, like, look at this guy probably. Like if I saw somebody wearing like a rug with a, a head hole cut out of it, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. a joint, I'm like, this guy is probably more likely to want to talk to me about how infinity is expanding but how could infinity be expanding? I mean, then my dad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that's, I guess, sort of a recurring theme for a lot of your work, right? Um, Comedy, sex, religion. um, Those are some of your big points. Do you find those themes have a place in your, you've got a new project coming up, um, How We Roll. Mm -hmm. Are those uh, undercurrents in in that series at all? Well, um, Mark Gross, who created How We Roll, is, is definitely a fan of mine. And he, one of the reasons why he, he's now my friend, and I'm, I'm so glad we have found each other. But one of the reasons he was drawn to me for the role was because of Crashing, the show that I did about comedy. And he was like, How We Roll is very similar in that you need to sort of want to root for the lead guy who's taking a chance by following his dream. So that's what he saw as the parallel there. When it comes to like, the show being overtly philosophical or anything like we're talking about. (laughs) Um, No, not really. Uh, Not that, again, not that's overt. I actually, I mean, I I find being on a a sitcom set to be very trippy in this really enjoyable way Um, (laughs) because it's fake. It's a soundstage and it's fake and they have trees inside and literally there's somebody's job. There's a, a string tied to a tree and he's pulling it to make it look like a wind. I mean, that is the cosmic joke. That is mm. funny. You laugh right away. That is what comedy is, is a man with a string inside, tied to a potted tree and someone yells action and then he starts pulling it to simulate wind. Like that is that just is trippy. I don't have to like force, like we're all sort of, I don't know, man. I don't want to get too deep. I'm realizing as you bring that up, I'm like, I should be doing a better job of promoting the show. Here's what I'll say. Instead of going into how a soundstage is a very psychedelic feeling place, and it is. Even though that's what we want to talk about. Let's go ahead. We can. I've actually had friends that smoke DMT and they went to a soundstage like a sitcom. And, and the, the, their trip was they were in a living room and then the walls of the living room fell down and they saw the lights and the camera people and the stage. And then the walls of the stage fell down and it was like black night, like starry sky. And then the walls of the starry sky fell down and it was like infinite strings, like kind of like a string theory kind of thing. Uh, of course, he was just trying his best to explain it. But when you see, it's like the movie Synecdoche, New York. It's like when you see that this little Leela of making a TV show does reflect and uh, have a relationship with the the larger Leela, which is 
I'm playing a dad on a TV show and I say this way and I relate this way. Then I go home and I am a dad. And the set of that <laughs> show, that play, there's four walls and there's no cameras, but there are cameras because we're looking, you know what I mean? We're watching. <laughs> so like there is something inherently philosophical and, and trippy about, I'll say making a show like that. To bring it to earth a little bit more, one of the reasons I wanted to do it what one, because it just sounded like a lot of fun and the script was really funny for sure. But also during the pandemic, Val, my wife, Valerie and I, we were just watching so many multicams. There's something about the familiar, especially kids of the nineties, familiar, the stages are familiar, the characters all seem to know each other, which is a real phenomenon on, on a multicam. You spend way more time together you have way more scenes with the same people. So like rapport is built up. Whereas on Crashing, it was great, but sometimes I'd meet someone that day and then I'd film a scene with them. So we're not gonna have that same rapport, that instant rapport. But on a multicam, it's the same characters a lot of the time. A lot of the time it's the same. It's my mom, it's Archie, it's my wife, it's my son, all these things. So we build this rapport and you put them in these cozy little uh, sets, you know, like the Cheers set. How familiar is the bar in Cheers or the living room in Friends or whatever it is. Yeah. And there's something so therapeutic for that, more than watching a show that could go anywhere. Now we're in a Chinese restaurant that you'll never see again. Like <laughs> this show is like, no, now we're in a bowling alley and you know this bowling alley. And then we're at Tom's house and you know this house. We build a new set every episode. So there's, you know, there's surprises, but there's something warm about it and and for me nostalgic about it so getting to do it was really fun but honestly it's these are these are the shows that I'm enjoying watching especially for some reason the past three years mm -hmm. yeah there's a comforting quality to it and yeah nostalgia mm -hmm. to that same stage um right and I wonder, you know, a lot of your work has been at least semi-autobiographical. Is there any any sense of that in how we roll? Well, it, it's semi-autobiographical about Tom Smallwood, the guy that, the, that my character is based on. But even that is loosely. But there was, there is a man who is a professional bowler named Tom Smallwood who got laid off from an assembly line making cars. And he got laid off and then he made a play at, at trying to be a professional bowler. So this is semi-autobiographical uh, for Tom. Um, we added something, or I should say Mark added some things like Tom, my character has a son, for example. Uh, so it's not exactly one for one him. And then when it comes to how much of me is in there, because I don't know, I don't know how much thought I gave it, but I wanted to find the similarities between me and him because I like being funny the way I'm funny. I didn't want it to be like a Pete vanishes into the role. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like doing like a, a heavy Michigan accent or, or walking differently or whatever it might be. I do carry myself a little bit differently. There's small choices uh, as an actor that I'm making, but for the most part, I wanted the show and, and Tom specifically to be funny and believable. And the, be the best way for me to make him funny and believable was to make him like me, because when I'm like me, I can be funny in the way that I know how to be funny and I can be likable in the way that I think I know how to be likable, uh, as opposed to 
redesigning a, a whole new guy. <laughs> um, yeah. that, that was just my choice. Some of the other actors on the show, like Julie White, who plays my mom, who's incredible. It's been awesome watching her like build the character of Helen. And she's, she's a much more like serious and professionally trained actor. My approach is like, how can I say this line to get the biggest laugh and be the most surprising? Hers is genuinely like, what, what did my character have for breakfast? You know, like kind of that <laughs> sort of thing. Like, what is she experiencing right now? And, and she is, you know, she's stealing the show. She's hilarious. So I'm learning a lot from being with uh, true actors. Katie Lowe's too, who plays my wife. These are like real, when I say real actors, I, I just mean that as opposed to like on, on Crashing, we, it was a lot of um, comedians like me. It was, it was a, mm. and improvisers and they were great actors. Don't get me wrong. But this is my first time working with people that are like really going and like doing a character study. So it's, it's yeah. fun. Well, I loved that about crashing. It had um, a behind the scenes quality to it. Yeah. Did you did you have any indication that it was coming to an end? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. HBO would call and they'd just call me a poopy pants and hang up. It was so. Weird. <laughs> oh, no. no, we did. We did just. There was like a, just a, this is so, I don't want to sound pretentious, but it was just on the wind is what I was going to say. Like mm -hmm. not, HBO was so supportive and always so great. Um, so there was no like, they're not happy or the ratings are bad. There was nothing like that. It just sort of like was naturally reaching its conclusion. And I know maybe I sound like a guy who had a show that was canceled and now I'm going to be like, but it felt right. <laughs> when when Casey Bloys called me, he's, he's the head of HBO, uh, or, or at least one of the heads of HBO. He called me and, and told me I really did take it well because we did, if you watch it, we, we were like, I think it's ending. <laughs> like, I think it's ending. And so we're going to have, I, I won't spoil any, anything if people want to watch it, but we're going to have like a, the big story sort of get tied up. And then as a result, because it did go three seasons and not four, um, it ended up being what we always intended it to be, which was a show about small victories. Mm. What I always hated was usually on a show about following your dreams, like as a comedian, it would be a montage, if anything. It would be like the first episode. Someone's going to quit their job and they're going to try and be a comedian. And they'd be like working hard for the money, playing, and then just me at open mics. And I'm like slowly getting better. Or like impossibly, they just are better. Mm. And and then next thing you know, they're getting a TV show or something. Like this is this is typically what you see. And what I wanted to show was a little, and, and Judd too, and everybody, we wanted to show what it's actually like, which is these tiny achievements that take a really long time to get to. Um, so the show ends, I don't mind spoiling this, where Pete is sort of accepted a little bit by the scene and that's the accomplishment. If we had done a fourth season, it would have been about we broke it, which means like outlined it. Um, it would have been about P getting a show, a TV show. And then it, I think it would have been a different show because the show's called Crashing, not Flourishing. It's supposed to be mm. about the struggle. It's not like if he makes it, uh, it becomes that much less relatable. Right now, as it is, it's relatable to hundreds of comedians, maybe even thousands of comedians. But if he cracks it and Hollywood does give him a call, it's a different show. Now we're, now we're watching uh, like episodes or, 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 you know, the comeback or shows that are about show business. 
And we never wanted to do a show about show business. We wanted to do a show basically about open mic comedy. I love that. Um, I think you've been able to take advantage of some really cool mediums with your work. Um, technology has kind of evolved a lot over the past decade, um, you know, from your early creations like Badman, mm-hmm. um, which my boyfriend was thrilled to death that I was talking to you. Oh, that's Batman great. Fan, um, that's <laughs> to, you know, podcasts and streaming. How, how do you think streaming technology has sort of helped your work to evolve? Well, I'm, I'm sort of like an old fogey, meaning I was very lucky to work with College Humor, which was, um, which is a streaming service. Uh, it wasn't a streaming service when I started, it was a website and they had some video content, but that was a real, um, like the Malcolm Gladwell book, Outliers. And remember, did you read Outliers by any chance? I hate to be that guy that's like, did you read it? Anyway, <laughs> no, unfortunately, no. You don't, you don't, certainly don't have to. It, it talks about like, for example, Bill Gates was exactly the age you need to, needed to be. He was old enough to understand computers, right? Let's say that's 12. At exactly the time when computers were made available. Does that make sense? Like yeah. the home computer became available when he was 12. So he was the age, but the youngest you could be when computers became available. So that was a hugely fortuitous thing that has nothing to do with how smart he is or who he is. It's, it's a timing thing. Right. Uh, and similarly, when I did Badman, I, I feel like it was just the beginning of viral videos and like mm-hmm. and even like doing a series of videos. And I was so lucky to meet Oren Brimmer who directed those and Matt McCarthy, who was my roommate who played Commissioner Gordon. And I wrote it not knowing that we would do, I think we did 10 of them. Um, But like, we didn't even really know what we were doing. I feel like kids now, if you made a video like that, you'd be like, and this will go viral and we'll do more of them. We were just like, (laughs) I have one idea. What if they catch Batman when he's trying to hide? (laughs) (laughs) that, That was it. And then we did it. And looking back, of course it was popular. Like, it's you know like there's so many batman things now that and they all seem to go viral it's such a part of our cultural identity that looking back we could have been like of course this will be a hit but believe it or not we were just trying to make something that would be funny and then it sort of it did take a life of its own and we got to do so many more so anyway that all that's to say is there was a sweet spot for both streaming and podcasts and i was very fortunate to have my sort of Bill Gates moment, meaning like, oh, I'm for the first time it felt in my life, I was getting into something right sort of as it was taking off, mm-hmm. meaning videos, online videos and podcasts. Although I'll tell you, even though anybody would say, oh, Pete was lucky he started his podcast when not everybody had a podcast, right? Because if you start a podcast where you're talking with comedians, you are now competing not only with me, which is fine, uh, but you're, you're competing with Conan O'Brien, which is not so fine. You know what I mean? Like, how are you going to take down Co- or, or compete with Conan O'Brien? You can't. Uh, so it was, or you can. I don't want to be defeatist. It's just harder. So I was very lucky that both of those things were at the beginning. Oh, this is what I was going to say. At the time, though, everybody told me I was too late. I, I, I want to point that out. Like, wow. even though it was 10 years ago or more that I started my podcast, even then, there were naysayers that were like, it's too late. It's the bubble's already burst. You're wasting your time. 
Wow. Uh, and I'm really glad I didn't listen to them. So if you hear us, right, people listening or, or reading this think that it's too late, who, nobody knows. Just do, just do what you feel like you can be good at. Oh, yeah, I dig that. Yeah. Um, and you do get to talk to a ton of cool people on the podcast um, and share some of the experiences you've had. I know a lot of comedians randomly have like smoked with Snoop Dogg or, you know, they have their like Snoop story. Is there, um, is there someone that you've particularly enjoyed maybe smoking with? Well, I mean, I, you can see many of the times I've been stoned is with Doug Benson uh, and they're ridiculous. <laughs> something about, something about Doug, he's, he, <laughs> I'd like to think he's leaning into it, but he sure gets annoyed by me. And by me, I mean, talk about Alila, like it's a real character. When I'm with Doug, I just go into the madman character and I love being annoying and <laughs> loud and, and talking too much and I'm really not that way all the time but for some reason that's what the fans were responding to and so now whenever I'm with Doug I, I just go nuts and my favorite in fact number two let's say number two is uh, smoking at home or watching a movie and getting so it's so distant from my number one weed experience which is smoking pot performatively that I think is the the truest and best, and I mean, it's a thousand times better than just doing it at home. Uh, if I'm on a show, a live show, there doesn't have to be an audience there. In fact, it's a little bit better if there isn't an audience, but if you're filming it and Doug is there, <laughs> that is my favorite. I mean, weeping with laughter, getting so stoned that like, I mean, I didn't come down for like hours after the show. I remember way higher than I've ever been in my life, but weeping with laughter. And, and I'm, I, it might be annoying. I, I would totally concede that it's annoying. But when I'm stoned, I just marvel. It's, oh yeah, it's annoying. As I'm saying marvel, it is annoying. But I marvel at my own mind. I don't know if you've ever done that. I'm like, how did I think of that? Like, like <laughs> you're being funny. And then you start thinking about like how quickly your brain, you really feel like your brain did it. Your brain said this thing and you're enjoying yourself as much as anyone else would. That's one of the things that, that I do like about pot is it helps me be grateful. If you get me stoned, that's, that's when I'll really be like, I'm a comedian. <laughs> like that, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. It's a really good place though. It's like a heart open sort of like, I can't, like I become 10 year old me. And I can't believe that 42-year-old me is a comedian. I just get really happy about that. And, and most of the time, you know, when you're not stoned or whatever, you're, you might be a little pinched and you're really just trying to hold on to it. You're, well, yeah, I'm a comedian, but like, should I, should I do this or that? Or like, it's not, it's not so fun. So again, it can turn off that analytical mind and let you just ease into what is, whether that's a, uh, you know, a, a journey of self-inquiry, as we already talked about, or <laughs> just owning that it's amazing that you're alive and that you're okay right now, and or in my case, that you're a comedian. Um, but I, I've been at a show where Snoop Dogg was passing around a joint, and I didn't, I didn't take it, but my friend did take it, and he said it was the strongest weed he had ever had. And when Seth Rogen did my podcast right afterwards, he lit up a joint and he handed it to me. And it was like, 
<laughs> it was probably like 11 a.m. And I was just like, I no, no. <laughs> I'm not into it right now. <laughs> I will say this is silly. Like I had to drive home. I had other things to do that day. And I think he did too. But I, you know, I think he's very functional with it. I am not. I, I'm a super lightweight. I'll take like a like a 2.5, you know, those Petra mints. Have you ever had those? It's like oh, a micro yeah. dose. Mm-hmm. That that gets me stoned. Like five eating weed five milligrams or is it micrograms or milligrams? Uh, that gets me really stoned. Um, so I, I declined both of those. Uh, both of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair though. I think yeah, different strokes for everybody. If you yeah. Wanna... Do you... I'm away with everything. It, mushrooms too, LSD, everything. Like it's it's just like whatever you're giving everybody. Like I should probably start with half. And I get really, I don't know why, but I get frustrated. Like the number of times I've had friends that have never smoked pot or um, yeah, it's always been pot. I I'll give them some and they never feel it. It's like this really, I'm a sensitive person and I think I'm a fairly embodied person. Uh, and I'm also like a, a little bit overthinking, maybe even can lean a little towards neurotic, you know, like in that comedy way. So like if something changes in here, like I notice, mm-hmm. and I do think a lot of people are disembodied and, and not really don't have a very strong relationship with themselves. So you got to get them really stoned before they notice. But man, I'm one of those people. If someone else is smoking pot, I start feeling stoned. If I know I'm going to do it as well. Like my body's like, okay, we know where this is headed. Let's start doing it. You know? yeah. Prepare your, do you, do you enjoy CBD at all? I do. Yeah. Um, CBD when I was doing crashing, what I, what I love about CBD is that is functional for me. Yeah. I, I can write on it. I can work on it. And it was, you know, um, Ned, Ned and company is, is one of the sponsors of my podcast right now. Uh, and they make a really, they, they have like these really groovy farmers that grow it, <laughs> which is part of what makes me love it. That like play music for the plants and all that. I like that stuff. Anyway, my point is you can take it, when I was doing crashing, I was taking one called Charlotte's Web. I would take Charlotte's Web while we were shooting because I was so stressed. Not in a bad, not necessarily in a bad way, but when you're writing it and producing it and then you have to act in it and what you have to act as is like a happy person, like a light person, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to shift those gears. So I would, I would sometimes take uh, CBD on set, especially if I was and I often was being called upon to be like light or like happy or whatever. Cause I always said CBD puts a smile behind your face. If that makes sense. It's like, <laughs> yeah. you're not smiling necessarily literally, but there is a smile. There's like a mold. What are we both stoned? There's like a mold <laughs> of a smile right behind your face. That's so much easier to fill in with a real smile. That's just a fancy way of saying it makes you much more quick to smile or laugh. And that is, sort of my favorite weed i this is a snooze and your readers probably don't want to hear it but like i have like a real hot cold thing with weed like i'll be into it and then i'll be convinced that it's like it's uh robbing me of essential life energy <laughs> like like i'll go hard off of it and then i'll go back on it usually as like a celebration or like a 
sometimes quite literally is like a, a headache or a painkiller sort of thing. And then, and then I'll be like, this is the greatest thing in the world. But I do tend to run a little hot and cold. I have some addiction tendencies and that is certainly one of them. It's hard for me to strike like a, like a balance of like, yes, I like weed and sometimes I enjoy it. I'm like, if I do weed on Monday, I'll probably do it on Tuesday and, it'll, and I'll probably do it every day for two weeks and then I'll stop and I'll be like, fuck that shit. Like it's real, it's, it's a little compulsive now that I'm saying it. But if there was one thing I would say bad about pot is that like sometimes you pay a toll for, you have this condensed time of heightened everything. And then just the way that everything works, that's going to be balanced out the next day. You might just be a little flatter the next day for me. So that is always the, the, the negotiation I'm making with myself is like, do I want to take some of tomorrow's happiness today? Because mm -hmm. tomorrow I'm going to be a little bit just drier, a little bit less um, just dry, just a little foggy. I get cobwebby and stuff. Yeah. I don't think you're alone in that. I think more people um, do it in moderation than you would think you know, yeah. from, from pop culture. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're either a pothead or you're not. But yeah, I, I've just started getting, experimenting, having, or I should say some success with doing it on a Monday and not doing it on a Tuesday. That, yeah. that's, a, that's a newer thing for over 40 people. Well, I appreciate your perspective on it. I I hope with our magazine, we can show that it's something that people can use in all different capacities, different lifestyles can and do that use is. it already. That's right. But it's just yeah. not something we get to hear a whole lot about. So I appreciate you being so candid and, and sharing with me. Um, of course. I guess I'll, I'll wrap up um, with asking if there's, you know, if there's one message maybe that we haven't hit on or a point that we haven't hit on something that you could share with our audience today. What would it be? Well, I mean, obviously the most important thing is <laughs> taking a little time to ask yourself when you sing happy birthday in your head, who is hearing that? <laughs> important. I mean, Patricia, for some reason, and I touch upon this in my book, when people say the most important question you can ask is who am I? In the West, what we take that to mean is who, who is Pete? Pete, okay, I'm Pete. I'm a tall Lithuanian. Uh, I like um, Jason Bourne movies. I didn't like the new Matrix. Like, you know, like you're like, that's how I am. <laughs> I like my eggs scrambled. I like um, chai. I don't like coffee. It makes me nervous. Like, you think this inventory of your, you know, your attractions and your aversions or your likes and your dislikes, you think that's who you are. That's, that's like the, that's like the most stupid <laughs> way to interpret that question. When you ask, who am I? You're like, who, when I say I, what do I mean? And what is that unchanging backdrop? What is the screen? What, it, what, it, what doesn't change in you? Because you always, you know, Norman Lear did my podcast. He was like 90 something. And I was like, do you feel older? He's like, no, that's it. None of us feel older. This, this, this is the same as it was when I was six years old. That's who you are. That, and, and upon that, we project all of these roles and identities and whether or not you like these movies. That shit is all, it's on fire. It's going away. 
Mm-hmm. You can even see it in your life. Sometimes you like Jason Bourne movies and later you don't. It's not <laughs> consistent, which means it's not essential to who you are. Who are you? That is the most important thing that regardless of the interview, if someone was like, is there something you want to say? And this, I don't have anything to sell. I, I, I'm not saying like, and, and that thing should point you to Jesus or, or Buddha or whatever. Get all that stuff out of the way. Just take a good, healthy moment today to recognize that there's, an un, there's a still, clear, fulfilled, which means happy, desireless, which means peaceful, presence behind and throughout every single thing you do. So if you can tap into that instead of like experiential or objective happiness, constantly chasing the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, like maybe this has worked for you. Maybe you're like, once this interview is done, then I can be happy. It's like, even during this interview, can you keep just like a little anchor in that place that's, that isn't just content right now, is made of contentment, is like unperturbable is the word that they use. It can't be disturbed. That, that I would ask. So you don't have to meditate. You can just, whenever you're bored, just say, when I say I, what do I mean? What do I mean? Uh, and then I would also say, because I'd be remiss, and here's the God's honest truth, how we roll, I'm really happy making it. I really enjoy it. I think it's really funny and good, and there's some heart to it. And I really want to keep doing it. And I think people will enjoy it. So please watch that show. I think that's not just what I'm supposed to say, but that is true. I, I, I love making it. even And it is a DMT verse that I'm shooting on. So let me go back. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. You are such a delight. I thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for being candid and sharing some really insightful stuff. I'm excited. Yeah, my to share. yeah I'm, I'm glad to, we got to do it. Thank you for helping us get the word out. If you enjoyed today's episode of Cannabis Tech Talks, be sure to follow, like, and subscribe on Apple iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, MJ BizCon is just around the corner, and Cannabis and Tech Today will be live on site to bring you the latest innovations in cannabis technology. We're offering our annual MJ BizCon prize pack loaded with awesome gear, and we'll be recording live from the Summit Research and PolyScience booth number 2417. Stop by and see us to pick up a free copy of the latest issue, and stay tuned for special celebrity announcements and giveaways. That's all for this episode of Cannabis Tech Talks. Until next time, stay elevated. Hey, hello, I'm Tommy Chong. If you want something really nice in your laboratory, buy Durachill. I'm telling you, if you're not using this Durachill, you're not really in the pot business. You're just on the fringe of it. So if you really want to get serious, man, this is what you need. You need a Durachill in your life. You've got the technology here to have the cleanest, purest, healthiest product. I'm impressed. You want me to sell this? Buy it. Try Durachill or else. If your chiller's down, you ain't making money. And you heard it from me, Tommy Chong. Brought to you by PolyScience. 